Let's pray together. Gracious Father, you are good and you do good. And I pray now that you would do good, have mercy upon this people gathered. I don't know the thousands of needs that are represented here, but you know every one of them to the deepest. And you know the needs of the parents and the children and the brothers and the sisters and the uncles and the aunts. And you know the burdens. You know what's going to make it hard for people to listen to this or easy. I plead with you to make this a Christ-exalting, Bible-faithful, Bible-saturated, God-centered, soul-saving, faith-strengthening, mission-mobilizing, justice-advancing, devil-defeating moment in our lives. Don't leave us to ourselves. Come, do exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything that people have come expecting. I pray that some would experience a profound alteration of the direction of their lives, believer or unbeliever. Lord, set us on courses that would maximally magnify your great name. So come and help me to those ends, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So once more, thank you, uh, especially the Bicentennial Committee and, and uh, Gordon, Pastor Gordon, and, and any others who had any hand in my being invited. It's an honor to be here. Not many churches are able to celebrate 200 years of steadfastness. That's amazing. So... It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for having me. Raise your hand, please, if you were not here for either of the services this morning. Okay. That's what I was told. That's what makes sure. So I need to uh, take a moment and review because I set up this message this morning. All right. So here's the way it got set up. I'm here in Boston for these four services to remove, if I can, by God's help, two obstacles to your embracing Jesus as the Lord of the universe and the treasure of your life and the forgiver of your sins and the provider of your righteousness and the guide of your family and everything that he wants to be for you. There are obstacles that stand in the way of people coming to that yieldedness and that reception and that embrace of Jesus Christ. and. There are two of them that I wanted to address, and one this morning and one this evening. And the way I addressed the one this morning created the one this evening, and so that's the reason for the repeat. So here's a summary of this morning's message. Uh, one big obstacle that stands in the way of some people, may not be you, is that God in the Bible, if you read it carefully, sounds like a megalomaniac. Meaning that all over the Bible, God is demanding that people praise him. C.S. Lewis said it sounded like an old woman demanding compliments. <laughs> praise me, praise me, praise me. You read it all over the Bible. If I were to act like that, you wouldn't like me. And rightly so. But if God stands here and says it, we're supposed to like it. And a lot of people don't. Should they? So what's the solution? I mean, how can that not be an obstacle if God behaves all day long in ways that we don't like among humans? Why would we want to go there? And the answer I gave this morning is captured in a phrase, and, and I'll say a word about it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I argued from, for that from the Bible this morning, but I won't now. But here's the way it solves the problem. If that's true, if God is shown to be most magnificent because I'm most deeply satisfied in him than I am in anything else, if that's the way God is seeking his glory, then for him to seek his glory and my maximum joy are the same. 
which means for God to be self-exalting is the highest virtue and the most loving act. For you to do that would be vicious, cruel. For you to say, praise me, praise me, look at me, know me, be satisfied with me would be sick because it would be distracting from where your true joy can be found. Therefore, what we do to love others is to say, look at Him, look at Him, praise Him, know Him, enjoy Him, be satisfied in Him. And if that's what we say, that's what God says. Look at me, know me, be satisfied in me, because you're made for me. You want to know joy? Know me. God is the one being in the universe who's stuck with being infinitely admirable. I must direct your attention to Him in order to be loving, and He must direct your attention to Him in order to be loving. If He were to direct your attention any other where, any other place, or, or to call you to, to admire or praise anything else above Him, He would be cruel. That's my solution to the obstacle of God seeming like a megalomaniac. If God is most glorified in you, when you are most satisfied in Him, then for Him to seek His glory in your life all the time is not megalomania, it is love. Now, the implication of that that I spelled out this morning briefly was, if that's true, then you should devote your life 24-7 to pursuing maximum joy in God. Because that's the way He is most glorified. He's most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. So if you're not, at the moment, most satisfied in Him, you should be pursuing that. And here's the obstacle I said I wanted to address tonight. It sounds like when you make that your goal, say as a pastor like me, I, I've been in Bethlehem for 29 years, and my goal has been to be used by God to create a people like that, who are satisfied in God. Isn't that going to produce a people who are all wrapped up in themselves and don't love other people? That's, that's the concern. That I have. That's the obstacle. If somebody hears this morning's message without hearing it related to horizontal love, how we love each other, a person could very easily conclude you, you, if you produce a kind of people who are always pursuing their joy, then they're just going to step on other people on the way to that joy, aren't they? They're going to care about other people, they just care about themselves. So that's the obstacle that seems to me has to be addressed and, and overcome because I frankly don't think you should embrace a religion or a faith that doesn't awaken love in other people and for other people. If, if it doesn't produce love, then we know intuitively something's wrong. Has what I've done this morning gotten me into a pickle so that I'm really producing a bunch of self-centered people who care only about their own satisfaction and the rest can go to hell as far as they're concerned as long as I'm happy. Or is it the case, and I made, I made this statement this morning, not only is it not an obstacle that seeking your own joy produces love for others. That's the only thing that produces love for others. If you don't get on a quest to maximize your joy in God, you won't love other people. And how, how in the world can we defend that? So here's, here's the way we're going to go about it. Uh, the text that was read, I hope I get to at the end, in 20 minutes maybe. But for now, I would invite you, if you have a Bible and you want to look, if you don't and you just want to listen, fine. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And here's why I'm going here. Second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth in the New Testament. It's like you're into giving pages in this church, so 
This happens to be 1164, which I'm sure helps you not at all, because you don't have my Bible. It's, this is the English Standard Version, big fat edition. But you can find maybe 2 Corinthians. And if you can't, just listen carefully, that's okay. What I'm after in this text is, okay, I have to know what love is among people before I can start making pronouncements that this way of pursuing joy in God gets in the way of that. It's an obstacle. We're just kind of using the word love like we know what we're talking about, and my guess is we don't. I don't really care what Boston or Minneapolis thinks love is. I care infinitely what God thinks love is. Because he's going to call me to account someday. Did you love your people? That's the main question after, did you believe my son? He's going to say, did you love people? That's the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the spirit of my son? If you have the spirit of my son, there's going to be some love in your life. I need to know what that is. Do you know what that is? How would you define it? So there are three verses in this chapter, which I think give us a beautiful, helpful, powerful, obstacle-overcoming definition of what love is. So let's read the first three verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me set the situation for you, otherwise it won't make any sense. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, you know where Corinth is, southern Greece, is going to refer to the churches in Macedonia, and Macedonia was northern Greece. That's where Philippi is, Thessalonica. And then Paul went there, and he was raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he's going to go with all his money to Jerusalem and give it to the poor. So he's raising money. And he had an amazing experience in Macedonia about that, and he's telling the church in Corinth about that experience in order to motivate them to give money to the poor in Jerusalem. So this is a fundraising chapter. And I wonder how you would do it. I wonder if you were going to Corinth and you wanted to raise money for the poor in Jerusalem, what would you tell them? What would you say to awaken this kind of love? It's going to be called love in verse 8. But let's read verses 1 to 3 first. We want you to know, brothers, and these are the people down in Corinth, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given, that has been given, among the churches of Macedonia. So the first thing he remembers is something happened in Macedonia, and what it was was God's grace, God's mercy, God's undeserved power and favor came down on that church and changed people. Amazing. Made them into weird, radically crazy Christians. You'll see that in a minute. That's verse 1. So grace, grace appeared and was given in verse 1 in, in Macedonia. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, I'm locking on to that, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own free will. In other words, no coercion going on here. Paul's not threatening them or bending their arm. He's just motivating them with the Macedonians. Or he's motivating the Macedonians with the grace of God. Now, here's the word love down in verse 8. Look at verse 8. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others, namely those Macedonians, that your love also is genuine. So you see what he's saying? What I just described to you of those Macedonians' response to my plea for the poor in Jerusalem, that response is love. Now, I want the same genuine love to show up in Corinth when I get there, so I'm sending this letter ahead of time with this kind of motivation. 
So now we know that verses 1 to 3 are a description of love. That's what I want. I'm after, well, I want to know what love looks like. I want to know how it works, where it comes from. Because I'm called to be that way. All right, let's go back and watch it happen. Just, it's so obvious. The pieces are right there in those first three verses. The first piece in the origin of love is that the grace of God is given. I'll just bear testimony. Without the grace of God in my life, I would be the most selfish person on the planet. There's no doubt about it. He's having a hard time with me as it is. I am wired like you are because of my inbred sinfulness. We don't need to explain the doctrine of original sin in order to know that it's true. It is the most experientially demonstrable doctrine in the world. Everybody is selfish. Everybody loves the praise of man. Everybody's looking out for himself unless some amazing thing has happened. So the grace came, and that's what has happened. Jesus Christ came into the world. He, he loved us. He died for us. He forgives our sins if we'll have it. He provides us with a perfection that we can stand before God with. And He gives us power by the Holy Spirit. He transforms our mind to think the way God does. Grace comes through Jesus. And it came in Macedonia. And that's the beginning of love. Now verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction... Affliction, and then their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Now take those two words, affliction and poverty, and just ponder them for a moment. Evidently, Paul did not preach the prosperity gospel. Because when he's done and he's thrilled that the grace of God is at work, Affliction is rising and poverty is remaining. That's what it says. There's a severe affliction and there's serious poverty. They didn't go away. A lot of people think that I'd become generous, I'd give to the poor if I ever stopped being poor. Look, you know as well as I do, there is zero Correlation between becoming rich and becoming generous. Zero. In fact, it goes backward. Jesus said so, and so does the internet. <laughs> Just go online. What do they have to type in, David? Where'd he go? David was sitting there. He's gone. He's heard this thing so many times he left. He, looked, he went on to check this out, Stephen, because I quoted it in the 4 o'clock service, and he went on, and I got, I said Alabama, it's really Mississippi. So, if you compare Massachusetts, this is amazing, here we are, if you compare Massachusetts with Mississippi, here's what you find. Mississippi, lowest per capita income, highest per capita giving. Massachusetts, highest, it might be one or two, I'm not sure. Per capita income, seventh in giving. There is no correlation between wealth and generosity. It goes backward. Jesus said that woman over there who put in her two pennies gave more than all those rich people because she sacrificed. When you're poor... So, anyway, don't ever think that if I could just get over this hump, I'd become a certain kind of person. You won't. Why do you think there's white-collar crime? Where did Ponzi schemes come from that are devastating thousands of people? It came from people who have about $4 billion, and it's not quite enough. You can't ever get enough. It's creeping. So, look at these crazy people. Look at verse 2 again. For in, the severe, in a severe test of affliction, with extreme poverty, it says, their abundance of joy... Can you just stop there? So we got poverty, affliction, and not just joy, but big joy. Big joy. 
abundant joy, which came from where? Verse 1, it came from the grace of God. It's not coming from absence of affliction. It's not coming from getting well. It's not coming from getting over financial difficulties like we just heard about. I hope that what happens on that Monday night event where the working together at parkstreetchurch.com gets together, I hope what happens there is not first strategies of getting a job. Crucial. I'm glad I have a job. I hope the first agenda is, is your heart resting in job or God? Because one of the reasons you may not have a job is because God's trying to get your attention. He's got something so much more important, and I'm not minimizing the difficulties of these days. But I don't think these days are worse than that. Verse 2. So, abundance of joy. It's coming from God, not stuff and not situation. And now, what happens? It says, it overflowed. You with me? I'll read the whole verse. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Where does generosity, that is, love, come from? Answer, overflowing joy in the grace of God. So what's my definition of love on the basis of those two verses? Here it is. Love is a grace-enabled... I'm going to try to get all my words from, from this reality here. Love is a grace, a God-grace-enabled impulse... I'm choosing that word to, to, to get at the inner... Freedom rather than external constraint. Okay? This, this, these chapters are all about don't give under compulsion. The Lord loves a what kind of giver? Because it's coming from in here. The Lord doesn't want you constrained by rules out here. 10%, 20%, 5%, whatever. Rule, rule, rule. That's not what love does. Love doesn't say, check the rule, keep the rule, did it. Ergo, I'm a lover. It's not true. It's, it comes from in here. So I'm, I'm using the word impulse. So now we got a grace-enabled impulse to expand my joy in grace to include you in it. That's my definition of love. There's an impulse, when, when grace comes down, when you know God, when you've seen God, when you've been loved by God and God's revealed Himself to you, and you're, you're blown away by the majesty and glory and mercy and grace and holiness and justice and patience of God in your life, and you know that's what you were made for, there comes inside of you a... I'm going to use a weather analogy. I don't know weather. I, this is probably a terrible analogy, but risk it just... Pretend it's true. Our, doesn't it work like this? There are high-pressure zones in the world during weather systems and, and low-pressure zones. And when a high-pressure zone gets near a low-pressure zone, wind is created. I hope that's true. <laughs> if, if it's not, pretend. And, and the, the high-pressure zone is, is moving. The wind is drawing into the low-pressure zone to fill it up to equalize the, the zones. That's the way I picture love. So grace is, is coming down and creating Christians called high-pressure zones. I'm, I'm, I hope God is making me into a high-pressure zone lover. Which means I've, I've got this impulse inside of me. He's been so good to me. He's filled me up. He's, he's satisfied me. He's given me a hope of everlasting life. And he's, he's turned all my pains into stepping stones to work good in my life. And, and it's a high pressure zone building up in here. So there's this impulse. Now, what does the impulse do? This is where love happens. The impulse wants to grow. This is why I said this morning... You must always be on a quest to increase your joy in God. Maximize your joy in God. You're never satisfied. Not on this planet. 
You're never satisfied with how much pleasure you have in God. It's never full. You never love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're always 10, 20, 30 percent behind full. So you're always on a quest in order to maximize your joy in God. Why? Because the impulse of love is the impulse of that joy that wants to get bigger. I want to be happier and happier and happier. And I have learned now from this text and many others that the way this joy grows into its fullness is by reaching others and drawing them into it so that my joy becomes their joy and our joy in God is bigger when we're doing it together. That's my answer to the obstacle for tonight. I do not believe that it's true that if you set your face to maximize your joy in God, you will become a selfish, unloving person. Rather, the thing that will give you joy will be the expansion of your joy in God into the lives of others. And you'll be able to die in that process. One of the ironies of of my understanding of ethics, my understanding of, of love, is that Even though I'm telling you 24-7, break your neck to find maximum joy in God, I do mean it might cost you a broken neck. That's what Paul said in Philippians about Epaphroditus. He risked his neck to complete your ministry to me. Honor such a man. That's love. So I'm not, I know I said this morning, somebody's going to walk out of here and say, Piper said, have as much sex as you can, drink until you're crazy blue in the face, and get as much money as you can because that's the way you can be happy. And he said, be happy to the max all the time. I know somebody's going to say that. <laughs> I just know it because... The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit. But maybe, if God were merciful, you wouldn't say that. You would say, no, no, no. What he meant was Acts 20, 35. I'll close with this. No, five more minutes. Two two, two more texts, not just one. Acts 20.35 is Paul concluding his message to the elders in Ephesus on the beach in Miletus. High emotional moment. And, and he says, I want you to serve the weak. And then he adds this motive. Remembering the words of our Lord. This is one of the very few quotations of Jesus outside the Gospels. Remembering the words of our Lord. How he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, really? It is more blessed, more happy, more satisfying to give, to die, than to receive. Now, here's an illustration. You know this. Deep down in your heart, believer or unbeliever in this room right now, you know this. And I'll show how you know it already. Do you feel more loved... When a person does a good deed for you, begrudgingly, out of sense of duty, or cheerfully, with a deep, longing desire and finding satisfaction in doing good to you. Which do you feel more loved? If I walk into a um, hospital room where one of my parishioners has just had a heart attack, and I put my hand on her arm... And she opens her eyes, and she's older, so she talks like this. She says, oh, pastor, you didn't need to come. Thank you so much. You're so busy. And if I say, it's my duty, I didn't really want to come, but I'm a pastor, (laughs) and I have to come. She won't at that moment feel loved, will she? I mean, not as much as if I were to say, Mabel, she's old. Mabel, I struggle sometimes with going to the hospital late at night, but I have learned something. I have learned that when I stand beside 
a member of my church and share a little of my weak faith to build yours up and to help you either live or die, I go away so blessed. I just go away so blessed. So it's not hard for me to be here. I'm, I'm loving being here because the, the, the payback for me, you minister more to me than I minister to you. Now at that moment, she could either accuse me of being selfish. Oh, the only reason you're here is because it blesses you. Or, or she, could, she could say, I understand. I understand that I'm getting blessed and you're getting blessed because God set it up that way. I do believe that our joy is maximized because our joy becomes the joy of others. That is, their joy becomes what makes us happy. If I could see her take heart, faith grow strong, defeat the devil, die well, I tell you, we'd have a great funeral. I'd love it. I love funerals. I love funerals way more than marriages. I'll tell you why. Very simple. Everybody's happy at a marriage. And therefore, God isn't needed. And everybody's sad at a funeral. And therefore, God is desperately needed. And therefore, people are more wise at funerals. Better to spend time in the house of weeping, Ecclesiastes says, than the house of feasting. Because at a feast, your stomach's full and you don't need God. But when you're... When you just lost the most precious thing in your life, then you have to decide, was that most precious? Or is God most precious? And that's, that's what you have to decide. And I said I would close. Five minutes is up, but I'll just point you to that Hebrews text. If you want to look at it, the one that was read earlier, I feel like, boy, if you read it, I should say something about it. Um, so here it is, and I'll, I'll close with this. I won't refer to any other text. Lord, don't bring any other text to mind, or I'll break my promise. Verse 32, recall the former days. This is Hebrews 10, 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle. This is just like 2 Corinthians, right? Affliction is not going away when they got saved. It's getting worse. Their life is getting worse, not better externally anyway. So you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. And affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So like sometimes it's coming at you directly. People are mocking you or throwing stones at you or writing graffiti on your house. Go home, Christian. Get out of here. We don't like Christians. Or sometimes it's not you. It's them, and you're a good friend of theirs. And what will you do? Go underground and say, uh, deal with that. I don't want to get my kids in trouble. Or you go beside them, and you stand with them in prison and get yourself in trouble. Well, that's what they did. So let's read that. Verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison. And here's what happened to you for it. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, that's crazy. That's why I came to Boston. If, if I could be an instrument in your life to help you act like that, the world would turn upside down. So they're burning your house on your way to prison and you're looking over your shoulder and singing. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, your kingdom is forever, I'm going to the jail. That's what love is. I'm going to Afghanistan, I'm going to Indonesia, I'm going to the Kurds. I'm going to the hard places in Boston. I'm going to my family member I haven't talked to for 10 years because I got so fed up that they never would respond. I'm going there tonight or next year. I'm going to do the hard thing and I'm going to rejoice in it. That's love. And now where did that come from? Next phrase. For you, since you knew, this is the end of verse 34, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. This is not maximum self-sacrifice. This is maximizing your joy in heaven.
You knew you have a better possession and an abiding, meaning it lasts forever. So if your house goes up in flames, if they burn all your wedding dishes. I had a woman walk up to me after the service, second service this morning, point to her engagement ring. And she said, I came to hear you this morning. And either on the way or here in this room, my diamond fell out. And it's, it's gone. And then she said, I just want you to know it's worth the loss of my diamond to hear what you said. Well, I could die and go to heaven. <laughs> I think, by the way, that they found it. So I think the story has a double good ending. Uh, but that's, that's here. That's this text. You, you, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, the confiscating of your stuff, since you knew you have a better possession and an abiding one. So I just don't buy it when people say... Uh, you can love God too much, or you can be too heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. A person who's no earthly good is most definitely not heavenly-minded. Because if your mind is satisfied with what God's, in store, God's got in store for you in heaven, you will be the freest, most dangerously risk-taking, loving person on the planet. You simply will not need money that you thought you needed. You won't need the praise of men that you thought you needed. You will be radically free. And that's, that's why I came. I, w- I would love to see unbelievers move into that process of growth. I'd like to see believers make strides. And I'd like to have stories come back to me, like the one from about an hour and a half ago, where a family said to me, we just got to see you and pray with you because we're going to Yemen because of you. I said, Yemen, Yemen, Yemen. That's not a safe place. Somebody, there was a Southern Baptist missionary who got killed in Yemen a few years ago. We know that. Five sons. That's why I'm here. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, please, there, there are people sitting right there that you are moving to do something really unusual. And I just... I want to be a help to call them to go ahead, go ahead. If God is moving you in that direction, do it for his glory. Expand your joy at great cost to yourself to draw others into it. And your joy goes up and their joy goes up. And that's what love is. And God is glorified. Pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I think we're going to do some Q&A, so hang on for another minute or whatever. I'm not in charge here. I just do what I'm told. Um, John, thank you so much for sharing with us. We would like to take a few questions tonight. We're going to do it in a couple of ways. If you've uh, got a question to follow up on on what has been shared tonight, we invite you to stand and ask that uh, loudly. But if standing up in front of all these folks is a little intimidating, we can let you uh, text your question. Um, to this We'll uh, take those questions. So as you're thinking of one or texting one or getting one together, let me, let me start with this one. Uh, John, I heard you say that grace is, is the key to this abundant joy that results in expanded love. And so it's not so much our attempts at love and as, as much as it is God's grace that makes that happen. Uh, yet experientially, when we you know, don't love as we ought, where is that grace? How is that we can access it in those times yeah. when our joy and love is, is just most difficult. Right. Oh, what a, what a softball. Um, I, I left that out of my text. I mean, I, I, the way I was going to address that, and I hope this answers your question, is um, since the Lord loves a cheerful giver, that is, you're supposed to give out of the abundance of the big experience of grace, and it's not there. You're not satisfied. You're coming into church. They're, they're taking this offering, okay? They're taking this offering, these gold plates. They're passing down the, the row. And you don't feel like giving at all. Should you? 
What do you do when the thing you're supposed to do is not something you want to do and you know you should do it? Does duty ever kick in? Or is it always only from delight? And if the delight's not there, you don't have to do it. Now, the way I answer that and the way a person who doesn't care about the inner dynamics of the heart would answer it are different. They would say, duty, do it. Do right. God wants you to do what's right. Doesn't matter how you feel, do it. I don't talk that way. I might end up in the same place, but here's the way I talk. I say, if you're sitting there and you have zero desire, counter desire to give to the cause of Christ, number one thing you should do is repent. God, I'm so sorry. My heart is so dead. It's just so dry. It's I don't know what's wrong with me, but I haven't enjoyed you for weeks, and I'm hardly enjoying my Bible. I, I didn't even want to be here right now. I don't want to give. I am so sorry. That's the starting place. Not like those feelings don't count. They count. It's sin not to want to give. And so you repent of the lack of, of, of the experience of grace. You repent. And then you, you cry out to God. That God, please restore to me the joy of my salvation. Give it back to me. Have mercy upon me. Open my eyes. Do a miracle. Change whatever you got to change. Do what you got to do. Do anything. I pray this all the time. I'm a pastor. I know if my heart dies, a lot of things die. This is desperation for me. Day after day. I need your help. So I'm crying out to God. I'm looking away to Jesus Christ. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He forgives my sins. He provides my righteousness. That's my only hope. I'm preaching myself the gospel. Now what? So you got to that point, And should you give or shouldn't you give? And I would say, if you can give with this mindset, Lord... I know I should, I don't want to, but here's why I'm writing this check. I'm writing it in the hope that in giving it, the joy would come. Because I know the mere giving does not please you. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I believe that it's right to give, but if you don't come, then I am praising you with an empty heart, and I don't want to do that. So my answer is... Jesus Christ is the source, ultimately, of God's grace, and we cry out for it, and God freely gives it in answer to our desperate plea. All right. Is it true that you don't have a television? It is, it is true that I don't have a television. Okay. Never. We've been married for 40 years, and the television has been owned for three of those years when we were in Germany because it helped learn the language so much. So if you need to learn English, all right, get a TV. If you need to learn bad, bad English, this, maybe. This is something. not, yeah. So I, here's the reason I don't have a TV. Oh, okay. I'm weak. I'm weak. I'm addictive. I don't even chew gum. <laughs> because I chew all five pieces at once. Or a lot of other things. You've got to just know yourself. I go on vacation and I turn on the television and I say, Good night, how can, how can you watch 15 commercials like that and not be worldly? I, I would die inside if I feasted on the television every night. I would. I would just croak. So, so how, do you, how do you, here's a sort of go back to your message. How do you balance abandon with a potential foolishness? Yeah. Um. Um, so I, if you don't know what that means, I take it to mean abandon, meaning do something really stupid for Jesus, uh, like try to walk on water, you know, or, or, and then drown. <laughs> that, there are people that have done that, word of faith people, so you name it and claim it. I'm, the only way to know if you believe in it is to do it, so you jump out of the boat. Um, number one, stay saturated with the Bible, because the Bible doesn't have just one verse in it. Like Jesus walked on water. It has lots of verses in it. And the whole counsel of God keeps you stable. Makes you discerning and wise. That's number one. Number two, have people in your lives. If you start being a loner, you, you, you'll get crazy. You, you'll, even the good things will become lopsided in your life. We need the body of Christ. Be in a group of, of guys and gals that are watching your life. And, and then be willing to spot each other and say... I think you're staying up too late every night. 
I think you're fasting too much. I think the way you go into that ministry is foolish. So those, those two things come to mind. Stay saturated with the Bible, which is kind of a ballast in your boat, so you don't tip over in any stupid direction. And then have other people in your life who are uh, discerning and counseling and helping you. Okay. Let me see there's a question out here. Does anyone have a question they'd like to ask? All right, stand up, please, and speak loudly. Um, how did and what time uh, in your life did the doctrines of grace really... Uh, become the basis of understanding the nature of God. Right. You could repeat that question. Yeah. Doctrines of grace is a a uh, shorthand for the doctrines that make the glory of God and the sovereignty of God central in everything. Um, and so I won't define any further than that. Those who know what it is can hear the answer. The rest can ask somebody. The answer is uh, 1968. Is that what you wanted to know? <laughs> um, it was it was the transition from college, where I, I would I was basically uh, I would say bought into the traditional free will arguments about how sin and evil and God's sovereignty and my responsibility work, and then in the next year or two. I'll just give you one example. I was taking an exam in a blue book in a systematic theology class with uh, Jim Morgan on uh, the doctrine of salvation, and he assigned us to do an extensive exegesis of Romans 9, and Romans 9 exalts the sovereignty of God in our salvation to the max, and I was a fight. I, I went... So I, I walk. So pretend that you're Jim Morgan, okay? Okay. All right. Just be careful now. So I, I don't know Jim Morgan, but I'll try. Did, all you have to do is stand there. Okay. And I walked up to Morgan after a class one day, who had just argued for God's sovereign control of all things, and here I am, so hmm. And I held my pen out like I said, I dropped it. <laughs> so that's where I was coming from. That's where I was coming from. And, and, and I wrote in that blue book at the end, Romans 9 is like a tiger going around devouring free willers like me. <laughs> so in that period right there, 68, 69, bumping into people who gave exegetical arguments. I didn't learn it from John Calvin. I didn't learn it from Jonathan Edwards. I learned it from Paul mainly. That's in the Bible. Paul is, was one of the writers of the Bible. So, so what do you suggest when you're open and ready to live an abandoned life, but God is silent? Wow. You mean silent in direction. I take it because you wouldn't be ready to move with abandon by faith if God were silent. But so, um, yes. Well, there are seasons, are there not, for everybody, not just weak people, everybody, when you're not, you're reading this, it's the only place I think God speaks with any authority. And if you've got stuff coming into your head like this that's skipping this, check it. You know, because it may be okay, but it's not authority like this. So the question is, what if you're reading this and you're seeing nothing? It's just blank. Words, words, words. Nothing beautiful, nothing wonderful. Then what do you do? And, and my answer, I, I, here's what I do. I've got this little acronym, I-O-U-S. I pray, I, incline my heart to your testimonies. O, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. U, unite my heart to fear your name. S, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. So my answer is don't, don't go. Don't go yet. If, you're, if, you're, if God's a blank to you right now and you're ready to do something radical, don't go yet. You've got you to know him, love him, enjoy him. He's, he said all authority is mine in heaven and earth. I will be with you to the end of the age. If you don't have that assurance, don't go. But if you have it, go. I, I think you'll give it if you wait for him and cry out for it. All right, let's take this one last question over here. You raise your hand over here. All right, loudly, please. Uh, 
So let me make sure I understand. One or the other is hoping in God, and the other one, the spouse, is not. Yeah. Well, that is what 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7 is about. So it, it only, I mean, it's only talking about the wife there who is a believer, a lover of God, and the husband's not there yet, and what she should do. And her goal in that text is to win him and to win him without... Um, certain kinds of clothes and hairdos, but to win with a kind of spirit of loving care and submission and so on. So, so for, for the wife, I would say the Bible addresses that very, very directly. Go to First Peter three one to seven and and pray like crazy, love like crazy, and uh, woo him not by becoming the ideal sex object, but by becoming the the best kind of loving, caring, admiring, respectful servant you can. With the man, it's almost the same, I think, but the way the service looks is different because men and women are different. I think men should lead, and they lead like Jesus led, by dying for his bride. And so husbands should cry out to the Lord, make me a servant of this woman, the way Jesus served his church. Jesus stayed the leader while he was serving. You know, sometimes people balk at this idea of the man being the leader in the home, and then they'll point to Jesus uh, as a servant with, on the floor with the towel, washing the disciples' feet. Says so that 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 is what husbands supposed to say. Absolutely, but guess what? When husbands were down there, I mean, when Jesus was down there on the floor washing their feet, nobody in that room had the slightest doubt who the leader was. Jesus was modeling Christ-like leadership. So really the answer is almost the same for both with different configurations. Plead that God would give such a, a restful contentment in him that you can serve the unbelieving spouse in ways that are unsinful. I mean, there are spouses who will ask you to do sinful things, and if Jesus is your Lord, you can't go there. But there's plenty of room for serving and loving and praying. And then I would say... Get a band of men for, if you're a man, or women, and pray them into the kingdom. Just pray them into the kingdom. Just, we we got bands of people at Bethlehem who pray for unbelieving spouses. That's all they do is meet to pray for unbelieving spouses. So it's, it's a huge heartache uh, to, to, to have a marriage that's not together at that point. So all you younger people, don't even start that, okay? Don't marry anybody who's not sharing profoundly your faith. Thank you so much, John, for being with us.